Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 3. We looked at Psalm 1 and 2 last week. We'll look at 3 this week, and then we'll continue on up to Psalm 7. Uh, We're not going to go through all the Psalms, but we're going to do these first seven. Do you believe that God is working to save you? Or do you wonder whether you have forfeited His good promises to you? This is where the psalmist, King David, finds himself in Psalm 3. David knows the truth of Psalm 1, that he who delights himself in the law of the Lord will be like a tree planted by streams of water, bearing fruit and finding success in all that he does. David also knows that it is that his Lord has anointed him as king over Israel. He even remembers the ceremony by which God has declared him to be my son. And he knows that he has a right to ask of God, give me the nations. And he also knows that it is his destiny to defeat every enemy who would oppose him. On the other hand, David is shamefully aware that his sin screams against him that he can no longer claim these promises for himself. In fact, through the prophet Nathan, David is even promised evil, even within his own house. Now, when David was confronted by Nathan, he confesses his sin to God. And he even receives from Nathan a promise of forgiveness. But David continues to struggle whether God still has given him his favor. Has his sin forfeited God's promises. And so the question is, to save or not to save? And that's the question that you and I must face as well. God has given you many promises in His Son, Jesus Christ. But your unfaithfulness to the Lord... And your inability to love the Lord your God fully are like prosecuting attorneys in the courtroom telling you regularly that there is no salvation for you anymore in God. The contrast between Psalm 2 and Psalm 3 could not be greater. David, as God's chosen king, has been promised victory over every enemy. But in Psalm 3, David's enemies are surrounding him, and they are increasing in number and strength daily. Listen to the first two verses. Oh, Lord, 
how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. And many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. You see, David's situation has gone from bad to worse. Things are not getting better for him. They are spiraling out of control. Things are getting so bad that many people around him are questioning whether God's favor remains on him. You see that statement, there is no salvation for him in God. It's not so much whether God can save, but it's whether God wants to save him anymore. And you know how this works. Everyone experiences some trials in life, but when it seems like they just keep coming, wave after wave after wave, and things aren't getting better, they're getting worse, you begin to say, wait a minute, is God really angry with me? Now, even your friends might look on you and say, hmm, he just seems like he's under the curse of God. You'd be like Job's friends. Surely you've done something to really make God angry. Your friends might question that, but your enemies will look at you and say, ha, 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 he trusted in God, but God's no longer saving him. You see, David had recently committed adultery with Bathsheba. And in response to that, his cover-up is actually to orchestrate a murder of Bathsheba's husband. And so when you start hearing these questions, is God saving him anymore? Your, your own conscience begins to say, mm-hmm, I deserve that. David, in the language of Psalm 1 and has not delighted in the word of God. He has taken the counsel of the wicked. Is he not therefore doomed to destruction? That's what Psalm 1 says, that if you take the counsel of the wicked and follow that path, then you will be, you'll perish. Has he now lost the favor of God? Charles Spurgeon writes that this is the most terrible affliction of the soul. If all the trials which come from heaven, all the temptations which ascend from hell, and all the crosses which arise from earth could be mixed and pressed together, they would not make a trial so terrible as that which is contained in this verse. To question whether God is still on your side. To think that He is now against you. That, that maybe the promises that He has given to you are no longer yours to have. That is the most bitter of all trials. While the fear of losing God's favor is the most terrible of afflictions, I would also argue that it is one of the surest signs of the Spirit's work in your heart. 
to feel your sin so terribly that you believe that you have forfeited any right to God's rich blessings, you're really not all that bad. It is a good sign that David's heart is pricked by the accusations of his enemy. But I will tell you that this pricking is so terribly painful that your soul cannot endure it for long. And the soul that cannot find any relief from that sort of pain, the life will just be sucked right out of it. William Gurnall says this, when the believer questions the power of God or his interest in it, his joy gushes out as blood from a broken vein. It's said that if you cut the femoral artery in your leg, you can bleed out in like 10 minutes. You're just done. You can't live thinking that God in His wrath is over you for long. How did David get to this point? How did the one who has been given the richest promises of any man alive up to this point? I mean, he's been given incredible promises. How did he get to this point? Well, you got to know something of the backstory. Now, the psalmist, who I believe is David, once you as the reader or singer of Psalm 3 to, to have this psalm widely apply to you in your situations. And so as he does this, he doesn't in the psalm give you that many details. But he does want you to know enough about David's situation so that you can actually resonate with David. You can identify with him. And so at the beginning, in the heading of the psalm, it says, A psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Now we read a chapter of that this morning already. I actually would encourage you to go back and read chapters 13 through 18 on your own time. I'm not going to do that here today, but I'm going to give you just a little flavor of it. So you can feel David's heart now absalom is david's third son to his third wife won't go into that today she is the daughter of talmai king of geshur a neighboring kingdom to the east and south of israel and absalom happens to have a sister and she happens to be knockout beautiful David has another son, his firstborn, named Amnon, who is the rightful heir to the throne. So Amnon and Absalom are half-brothers. Amnon becomes infatuated with the beauty of Absalom's sister. Her name is Tamar. And because they are really kin, he can't take her as a wife. Enter into the story a man named Jonadab. Now, Jonadab is the son of David's brother, so you might call him Uncle Jonadab. Now Jonadab conceives this plot whereby Amnon can get alone with Tamar. 
and then he rapes her. And she becomes pregnant. Um, wait a minute, I don't know if she, she doesn't become pregnant, excuse me. And according to the customs of the time, Tamar must bear the shame of being violated, even though it's not her fault. And so she moves in with her full brother, Absalom. And you can imagine, Absalom holds hatred for Amnon. Now this is the, this is the family of our beloved King David. Not, not going too well. So Absalom holds this hatred in his heart for not one year, but two years. And after two years of plotting, Absalom takes his revenge and has Amnon killed. But after being discovered that he is the one behind the plot, he flees back to the country of Geshur. But Jonadab, Uncle Johnny, speaks up for Absalom and says, David, you really want to bring him back. And Amnon was only getting what he deserved anyway. David is torn. He grieves over the loss of Amnon, but he also mourns the loss of Absalom. And so Absalom remains in Geshur for three years. David finally begins easing some of the comfort over the pain of losing Amnon. And Joab comes into the scene. And Joab is David's nephew by his sister. He's also the commander of David's army. And Joab was one of the guys whom David used to help kill Bathsheba's husband. Joab, all he wants is for David to, to have uh, an heir. He influences David to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. But Absalom comes back, but when he comes back, he's... He's still isolated from David. There's still bitter blood between them, and so they're living in Jerusalem together at the same time. Spends two whole years like this. Finally, Absalom begins to say, I'm going to reach out and try to fix this. So you think. So he comes to King David, and he bows himself to the ground. David kisses Absalom. You think everything's well. You think everything's good. Far from good. Absalom is plotting the overthrow of David. What he does is he starts going around, he starts winning the loyalty of the people. Oh, you want to take a case to David to judge? Oh, don't worry about it, I'll handle it for you. And he starts giving these favorable decisions to the people, making them like him more than David. Now, at first, you might think that this is just a small little uprising. Who would, who would go against King David? He's the anointed one. And that little by little goes on for four more years. Absalom's following gets larger and larger. And 2 Samuel 15, 6 says, So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And so then Absalom goes to King David and says, hey, I'd like to go to Hebron. Got to do some things down there. And if you don't know anything about Hebron, it's the place where David reigned before he reigns in Jerusalem while King Saul was still reigning. So Absalom gets permission. He goes down. And then from Hebron, he basically sends out all these messengers. 
I am the rightful king. Follow me. And the uprising has occurred. When David realizes this uprising at hand, you want him to stand and fight. Absalom is marching to Jerusalem. He's gaining followers as he goes along. His strength is growing. And you want to scream at David, fight, stand and fight. But Samuel, the book of Samuel, just kind of remains neutral. Just kind of gives you the facts. And you begin to wonder, is this the same David that stood against Goliath? David abdicates his throne without a fight. As he's leaving the city, the priest, who's siding with David, takes the Ark of the Covenant out of the temple and brings it to David and says, Hey, this is the Ark of God. This is the Ark that, that they would take before the, the enemies uh, and it would like defeat their enemies. So this is like the, the priest saying, Hey, take this and maybe you can win the battle against this uprising. You know what David says? Take it back to Jerusalem. And then he gives you his reason for doing so. Listen to this reasoning. This will help you understand what's going on in Psalm 3. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. And he will let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. See, if, if God decides to save me, if he's still on my side, all will be well. If he's not on my side, this ark's not going to help. God is right to do with me what he wants to do with me. David continues his departure from the city, weeping as he goes. He passes right through the Mount of Olives, of all places. <laughs> to add insult to injury as David is departing, a man named Shimei, David, uh, Nathan called him Shimei, which is, I don't know the Hebrew on that, so it could be either one. But anyway, Shimei, that's what I call him. He was an old holdout to Saul's kingdom. And you know what he says? He rises up and says, ha! Now you're getting what you deserve. You said that God was with you when you came to power. No, he wasn't. And now you're getting exactly what you deserve. Ironically, David is not guilty of any blood in Saul's kingdom. But he is guilty of Uriah's blood. One of David's commanders wants to wallop the head off the guy. And David will not allow it. He says, look, if God has sent that man to curse me, then I need to take it. What did he say? And you can understand then why the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary. At the Jordan. That is the situation out of which David writes Psalm 3. 
He may have composed it later. But he was writing about activities and heart feelings and struggles that were going on at this moment when he is weary by the Jordan. 2 Samuel records, and there he refreshed himself. It's far more than physical refreshment. It's interesting, as uh, Absalom arrives in Jerusalem, the people are flocking to him. And as David is, is encamped at the River Jordan, it's a very real possibility that Absalom would take the army and crush him right then. So when it says, my foes are all around me and my enemies are increasing, that's a real truth. Now, I hope that every time you read Psalm 3 and it says this is the point of where Absalom uh, is, is David's running from Absalom, I hope that comes into your mind because that's what the psalmist wants you to get every time that you read this psalm. The beautiful promises of Psalm 1 and 2 seem to be no more. And there's a little... Uh, a device that happens in a lot of the psalms called selah. And we don't really know a whole lot about what that means, but I think all the commentators are, are um, agreed that it at least means pause. Take a moment and think about what this situation is. So the time that I've just taken you to describe David's feelings is there me saying to you, pause a little bit. Think about this dark night of his soul. Don't just jump on to the next portion of the psalm. Knowing the depth of David's sin and the hopeless situation in which he wrote this psalm is helpful to us. You see, your situation's not exactly like David's. And this is why the psalmist doesn't just write it all out, because he doesn't want you to say, only if I'm in David's situation can I apply this. No, he wants you to understand you can apply yourself to this psalm. You have your own battles of the soul. I don't know what they are. I don't know what's going on in your heart. I don't know what particular sins that you most feel condemnation for. But God does. And I would ask you, are they worse than adultery and murder? Now the rest of the psalm is David telling you what he does with his feelings. Verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. David makes a choice of the will not to change his feelings, but to keep believing. He directly speaks to the Lord and he says, you are a shield about me. In other words, even though all these doubts and fears are flooding through my mind, I will continue to trust in you. You will protect me. 
And then he says, you are my glory. If there's anything that David is feeling at this moment, it is shame. People are cursing him. People are accusing that he is not, has no right to the promises of God. And he says, you're my glory. And it doesn't just mean that God is glorious. You are my glory. In other words, as I trust in you, you will take my shame and you will turn it into shared glory that you possess. And then he says, you are the lifter of my head. You know what that means? You lift your head up. That can be a bad thing because it could be arrogance and pride. But if you're doing well, your head's lifted up. But if you're doing bad, your head's down in shame. And he's right now in a time of shame. And he says, but you will lift my head. In other words, I'm not going to be able to lift my own head up but you will. And that's consistent with his words about, about the ark. You know, if God's against me, if God's not the one lifting my head, then I, can, I have no right to try to lift my head. But I'm trusting that you will lift my head. And I love this refusal of David to let go of the promises of God, even though all these circumstances and voices around him are saying, don't, don't, you don't have any right anymore. He says, but I'm going to keep trusting him. And I think David gives us a great model on how to pray. You want to know how to pray in your struggles? Just pray the first three verses. And then in verse 4, David gives us a great model on how to think about our prayer. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Now, strangely enough, the... It changes from like a direct address to God to David kind of third person talking about himself. And it almost feels like he's looking back years later. I prayed, he answered, and he, you know, like it's, but I'm not sure that that's really going, what's happening because later on at the end of the psalm, he actually prays to be saved. Um, so I think he's still in the midst of the situation. I think it's a poetic way of David speaking his confidence of God's deliverance for him and i love the fact where is he going to get this deliverance from his holy hill that's a reference to where the temple is in jerusalem mount zion isn't it interesting that he sent the ark back there take it back to the temple God wants to save me. He'll save me from there and bring me back to this place. David did not want to use the ark as some kind of talisman that he could somehow gain some victory over Absalom in his own strength. He wanted it to be there in Jerusalem so everybody would know if he was brought back to this place, it would be by God lifting his head and not himself. Brothers and sisters, you have a holy hill. It is the hill on which Jesus Christ died for your sin. There is no other place where you can possibly have any hope of salvation except that holy hill. Amen.
And again, we're brought to a pause, another selah. So just as you were supposed to pause for a minute and think about life just really is hitting me like an overwhelming flood and I deserve every bit of it, now you're supposed to stand over here and say, oh, God has answered me from his holy hill. There is an answer to every one of your sins, and it is the blood of Jesus Christ. Every word that stands against you, that you cannot be saved, that God would be opposed to you, has been countered by the blood of Christ. And you are to sit back and say, ah, God has answered. David has won the victory. He has continued to believe in the face of his own sin and in the case of opposition of enemies around him. He has continued to cry out to the Lord and from God's mercy seat, he knows that he has been answered by the Lord. What we have in verses 5 through 8 is a contrast between what David does and what God does. Guess what David does? Nothing. Verse 5, I lay down and slept and woke again. For the Lord sustained me. He is at the Jordan River. Absalom can be attacking him at every moment. And in the face of this looming threat, he goes to sleep. Now, more than that, he took some sleeping pills and can go to sleep physically. It is a statement by David that God will do the fighting. And if God doesn't do the fighting, he'd rather just be taken out anyway. You ever come to that point in your life? Where you've just basically said, Lord, if you're really against me, then I don't have any hope. You're either for me or not. God alone is David's deliverer. That's the point. And I'm telling you, we see a very different picture of David here than when he fought Goliath. And I must tell you, as a person, I'm much more comfortable with when he fought Goliath than what he does here. When he faced Goliath, he went out and he faced his enemy head on and said, Ah, I'm going to kill this Philistine in the power of the Lord. Here he basically says, I can do nothing. And if God doesn't fight for me and sustain me, I'm lost. No human strength whatsoever. Are you resting today in God's deliverance of you or are you trusting in your own strength to deliver you? It is often in the lowest points of our life, the places in our, t- in our life where we feel our guilt the worst, that we must rely on God's grace and God's grace alone to save us. In verse 6, we see David expressing this faith by overcoming his fears. He says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Let me just let you in on a secret. Everyone feels fear. 
No one is devoid of fear. And David has plenty of reasons to fear. Thousands of them, he says. It's not so much the physical location of his foes, like they're all around him. He just feels them all over the place. It's a perception that his enemies are too many for him. And he doesn't know how to swat them off. He's, he's like, you know, confused. How do I fight against this foe? And I keep bees, so the image that came into my mind was when bees are swarming around me. And typically you wear a hat and all this suit and you're like impervious to the bees. But I'm telling you, every once in a while, like your, your sleeve will fall down and there'll be an open spot. And those bees will find it and it's like a homing device. They all come at once. There was one time I remember, it was like 10 stings in a matter of like three seconds. And it just went from this calmness of working in the hive to like utter fear. And I ran as fast as I could out of that, you know, and, and those bees are following me. And I just kept running and running and running until finally I either killed them or they, they quit or whatever. I was scared to death. But in that situation, and I know this is not, this is so much smaller than what David's feeling or even what you feel in life, but... But I, after I got the bees taken care of and I pulled my, my sleeves back up and got myself, I said, I can't leave that hive open. I got to go back in there and start putting it back together. <laughs> and so I'm talking to my heart. I will not be afraid. And I walked back and I put the hive back together and it worked out. I was, I was petrified to walk back there. I'm sweating and I'm like, I'm afraid to do this, but I got to do it. That's what I think David's saying. The only person who is impervious to fear is God himself. He's the one who sits in heaven and laughs, not us. But the certainty of God's love towards us drives out our slavery to fear. And you know what? I made really real to me today that one of my fears is to be called a coward that's a fear that i have and a lot of what drives me is to not be viewed that way and so when i got to david here and basically the commander of his army is calling him a coward david let me fight let me go after this guy we can take him out david says no what do you think his commander was thinking of at that moment? What are you, a wuss? Where's the, where's the old David? Where's the, the one who takes out Goliath? What's your problem? And so David did not fear being called a coward. Again, the psalmist wants you to insert your fears into the psalm. If you've never sat down and thought about what is it that I'm afraid of? Because it's different for every one of us. You might fear lack of health. You might fear loss of job. You might fear, uh, you, know, you know, any number of things. Not having friends. You can just, we all have these fears. You cannot magically eliminate fear. But you can cast those fears on God knowing that He cares for you. 
Jesus Christ died on the cross to remove the curse over you. None of your sins are so big that the cross cannot cleanse them. All right, well, we're getting close to end here. Sorry that we're taking more time. Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. See, at the beginning of the psalm, there is no salvation for him in God. And at the end, he's saying, Arise, Lord, save me. You are my God. He is determined in his heart that even in the face of these enemies, he will continue trusting. David continues to trust the promises of Psalm 2. That's the illusion there. You strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Those are allusions to those first two Psalms. How can David continue to trust these promises if he has not been faithful to actually keep the conditions of those promises? Because David knows that he is not the one on whom the promises depend. The anointed king, the true anointed king, of whom these promises are made, is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is this coming king who is David's Lord. David's hope that God would defeat his enemies is wrapped up in his faith that God would defeat the enemies of this coming Messiah of whom he is not it. And I think it's beautiful. This entire psalm beautifully parallels Christ. Did not Christ's enemies rise up against him? Did they not mock him, saying that if he is the chosen one, then let him save himself while he's on the cross? Of course, Jesus had no sin of his own to feel guilty, but on the cross he felt the weight of your sin and mine. And is it not true that on the cross he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was on the cross that Jesus continued to entrust himself to the Lord to save him, to lift up his head. Jesus didn't sleep necessarily by the Jordan River, but he did lay down his life. He did go down in the tomb and rest, and he did rise up again. And is it not true that Jesus did not fear his enemies? And is it not the, true that the Lord has and will strike all of the enemies of Christ on the cheek and destroy them forever? And is it not true that because of all that Christ has done in his life and death, that salvation belongs to the Lord? See, the entire psalm points us to Jesus Christ. It's important to know this because if you are trying to get the blessing of any of the Psalms because of your own faithfulness, you're in trouble. But if you can see that Christ deserves all of this blessing, and because he deserves this blessing, you are blessed in him. Look at verse 8. It goes, it goes right from this blessing of an individual, David, as he's praying the psalm, to salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. All of them. It's not just an individual psalm. To you as a people. And there's another Salah. 
So here you are. Why is God, has he not removed his blessing from you? Because Christ has taken the curse and he has earned the blessing. And by faith in Christ, you enjoy that blessing with him. Amen. Now I want to tell you one last thing in closing. David does get taken back to Jerusalem, but he never gets the fullness of the blessing that is given to us in Psalm 1, Psalm 2, or Psalm 3. You know why? Because he will not get the fullness of that blessing until he enjoys it with all who are in Christ on the resurrection day. That's when we all enjoy it. So, so if you come out of here today and you think, man, I believe I got God's blessing on me, and the problems just keep coming, it's all right. The blessing is not for the world in which you live right now. Now, God is good to you. God answers prayer. He heals you know, diseases. He helps us along the road. But we all die. Our hope is for when the Lord Jesus comes again and the resurrection occurs. That's when we will enjoy the fullness of blessing with all of God's people together. That is our Christian hope. So brothers and sisters, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your guilty conscience, cry out to Jesus and cling to him because all the blessings are yours in Jesus Christ. Go in peace. Amen.